Welcome to The Social Contract Today, hosted and created by me, Jacqueline Courtney, a financial services compliance professional. This is the podcast where I look at the current affairs to question the state of the social contract right now, and whether we the people have given government, business or the mysterious powers that be far too much influence. Hopefully through this podcast, we can imagine a better, a fairer and more transparent society. So if you're new here, consider subscribing so you can be updated whenever a new episode is released. And also, why not give us a follow on Twitter at Contract Today. So welcome to The Social Contract, the podcast where I look at the state of the social contract in our world right now. And welcome to what I'd planned to be part two of a multi-episode focus on the question, whom does the social contract apply? In last week's episode, I looked at race, and in today's show, I was going to turn to gender, specifically the role of women in the social contract, and if it ever at all considered us. However, this discussion will have to wait for another episode, because there's far too much to say about recent events, and so today I'll continue with the theme of race. I cannot let this week pass without touching on a week that has left many with a heavy heart, as we've watched and shared in the hurt and pain at the death of George Floyd. As I wrapped up my episode last week, I made a few comments at the end around police brutality and racial justice. And this was because I'd recorded the episode in a week that followed where fresh clips of George Floyd appeared online. At that time, I refused to watch the footage because I was doing what I've been doing since the killing of people like Sandra Bland. I ran away, I hid, And I avoided reading about anything remotely related to police brutality because it hurt too much. After years of being outraged at each case, I'd grown numb, tired and quite frankly afraid of the mental and emotional toll allowing myself to acknowledge the grief would have on me. But this time was different. I couldn't escape it. From WhatsApp conversations to my Twitter timeline... I was forced to engage with the latest case. And so after I published the last episode, I did watch some of the footage showing Mr. Floyd lying face down on the ground with the weight of a grown man, Officer Chauvin, firmly placed upon his neck. I took a sharp intake of breath and looked away as it became clearer and clearer that none of Mr. Floyd's pleas and appeals to the officer's humanity were going to work. It's been over a week and I still haven't been able to finish watching the video. As I watched, my stomach fluttered, my blood heated, a cold chill went over me and I could feel sweat piercing through the pores of my neck and forehead. Why is that? Because even though this was America, it felt really close. In him, I saw every black man I'm related to. For many black people too, this is a common feeling because being in the wrong place at the wrong time means that this could be our fathers, our brothers, our uncles, our cousins, or our friends. It serves as another reminder that the act of being black alone requires a quiet strength because it's enough of an offence to be killed. Sadly, since Mr Floyd's death, another unarmed black man has been attacked and killed by the police. His name was David McCatty. As I observe the black America's despair over another police killing, as I lend my sympathy to those who are mourning, And as some of us in the UK have joined and continue to join protests physically and online in the wake of this event, 
I want to remember that what we've seen in the US with Mr. Floyd isn't unique to America. Similar things happen right here in these British Isles. And so we must look closer to home. In the UK, the black body, the black person and the black life is not always given the respect owed as a human being either. And a brush with the law doesn't always end with the right to a trial. So I'd like to mark this with a list of black Brits who've either been brutally murdered by police as a result of being shot or have been held for a period of prolonged restraint or who have died as a result of neglect, whose stories we must learn. Trevor Smith, Christopher Adler, Smiley Culture, Jimmy Mubenga, Michael Powell, Leon Briggs, Ricky Bishop, Brian Douglas, Joy Gardner, Derek Bennett, Kingsley Burrell, Sarah Reed, Roger Sylvester, Azeel Rodney, Habib Ullah, Farouk Ali, Adrian Thompson, Dimitri Fraser, Aston McLean, Rocky Bennett, Alton Manning, Mark Nunez, Edson da Costa, Jermaine Baker, Mark Duggan, Oliseni Lewis, Sean Rigg, Cynthia Jarrett, Sherry Gross, Mazie Mohammed, Sheku Bayo, and Leon Patterson. And I have a personal message of support to those who feel confused, hurt, saddened, numb and shocked at this time. As a global family, I speak to the black African diaspora. As a pan-Africanist myself, I believe that as one entity, as one body, we know that when one part is hurting, the whole body can feel it. And whilst we are many spread across the world, we are in this fight together. But as we fight, let's heal together. Let's support one another, console and strengthen one another. Let's pull our energies together to ensure this moment leads to real change to the way our race is treated. So if you've somehow not been following this week's events, let me give you a quick roundup. In the week that's followed the death of Mr. Floyd, cities around the world have erupted in response to racial injustice. Injustice which not only underscores the intensity of racism in the US, but that which heavily reflects that scene throughout the Western world, where racism against black people thrives and has gone completely unchecked in most circumstances. Global protests have ensued. Now I'll pause here to say that when I set out to make this podcast, podcast about the state of our social contract right now, I definitely hope for a revolution at some point just not by the second episode. The long-awaited global uprising against racism is finally here and I couldn't be happier. We're finally seeing people follow a call to action, a call to ending white supremacy and a call to fully living out anti-racism. The case of George Floyd has single-handedly reignited the Black Lives Matter movement. Not to say that it wasn't going on already, but this time it's propelled it to new global heights and has pushed conversations about police brutality and racist killings of black people 
upon unexpected areas of all of our lives. Events that have taken place this past week have been incredible, empowering to watch, have at times felt draining and heartbreaking, and yet have completely been necessary, but have fundamentally shown that there is still so much work to do. So this week's episode has to recap on the senseless murder of George Floyd in a detailed way. And it has to mark this moment in social change history, in civil rights activism, and in the fight against all forms of black racism. But let's start with the incredible. Following the death of George Floyd, there's seriously been an incredible turn of events. By Tuesday, 26 May, the very next day after his killing, all four Minneapolis officers were fired. And we saw, and that was when we saw the first protest take place in Minneapolis and the city's mayor, Jacob Frey, calling for criminal charges to be made against the officer who knelt down on Floyd's neck. By Friday of that week, 29th of May, prosecutors filed a third degree murder charge against Chauvin. Then on Wednesday, 3rd June, three more officers were charged in Mr. Floyd's death. And at that same time, the officer who knelt on his neck, he had his charge upgraded to second degree murder. So as it sounds, all four officers have been charged with the death of Mr. Floyd. We've also seen major calls for police reform and defunding in the US. However, in the UK, the police form has largely been mum on this. But there is a new police education qualifications framework that's coming into play, which aims for the force to be representative of the general population. And while this is a step that I acknowledge as being positive, I see it as only a small step, which doesn't go far enough, because it will only lead to an increased diversification of the force at junior levels, leaving the disproportionately white senior levels untouched. At present, there are no black officers at the highest ranks. One of the Met's most senior black officers, Superintendent Robin Williams, is sadly currently on the Sexual Offenders Register after she was found guilty of possessing an indecent image of a child which had been sent to her phone. A decision which is a classic example of institutional racism. And by the Met's own admission, it will take a 100 years for it to be more representative of London. So we've got a long way to go in the UK, but at least in the US, police reform is taking form. The demonstrations have also incredibly brought minds to cases of previous police killings of black people such as Sheku Bayo and Sean Rigg, whose families continue to wait for justice. There's also been an expansion of the Black Lives Matter movement since we've seen crowds in Tokyo, Australia, Lagos, London, Sheffield, Manchester, Leicester, Paris, Bordeaux, Lyon. That's 23,000 in France alone and about 15,000 in Berlin. Also Italy, Spain, Belgium, Denmark, Hungary, Cape Town and so many more have seen huge demonstrations over the last week. There's also been an awakening of the corporate moral sense of the dire racial situation that, that exists in professional environments. Blackout Tuesday and a slew of statements of supports have come in from some of the biggest names in sport, business and retail. And it's been a real sight to behold. I've been able to talk about race in really honest ways in the past week at work in a way that I've never been able to before. As co-chair of the Black Employee Network at my workplace, 
recent events have opened up an avenue for a number of initiatives and conversations to be had around inclusion, equality and the role of employers in improving these things. So it's all been incredibly, incredibly empowering. We've also seen people from all walks of life galvanised into action and solidarity in so many forms. It's made me as a black woman feel seen and feel heard. And and it's given me a sense of validation, I'm sure, which many people can agree with. The outpouring of sympathy has been empowering, as I said, but sympathy without action is useless and is ultimately meaninglessly performative in a way that is in fact insulting. So anyone who's had their eyes open this week to the true horrors of living while black, do remember that the work is yours. And if you go silent once the hashtags and protests have quieted down, then we'll know that it was all for show. And on this note, it's been quite draining this week too. Despite all the positives, we're still seeing that for so many people, the concept, the simple concept of Black Lives Matter is really hard to grasp. Whether it's a matter of failing to comprehend the basic message of stop killing black people, or whether it's outright racism and fascism. I don't know which one it is, but what I do know is there is no way any right-minded individual can believe that all lives matter is ever the right way to respond to the plea that black lives matter. Online, on TV, and I'm sure in many private conversations, black people are having to explain, and people who are allies are having to explain why this statement in response is incorrect. So I'll say it like this. All lives, which includes black, white, brown and other, do not matter given that black lives are routinely taken away. That's it. It's basic maths. We cannot have racialized police brutality against black people in existence and still be able then to stake a claim that all lives do matter until such time that black lives are no longer routinely and brutally taken away. We cannot validly declare that all lives matter. On top of fighting the fight, we're still having to explain our cause. And this is so tiring and draining. And it's simply a method of distraction, quite frankly. And as the great Toni Morrison wrote, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language, and so you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says that you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. This wonderfully captures what I'm trying to say and why I strongly believe that as black people and allies of this cause, that we should not be roped into conversations by people who are being overtly and um, so clearly obtuse. I believe everybody understands the phrase black lives matter. And so it's time that we just stopped explaining ourselves and continued calling for change. Then there's the media distraction, actually, in the UK, in which we've seen this week a story of Madeleine McCann, which bears striking similarity to news reported last year, this time of a ger- another German child killer, Martin Ney, who was then named as a suspect on the case in May 2019. 
This false flag is a blatant attempt to move the public's view from one story to another, which isn't unusual for news coverage. As we all know, news often rushes from one headline to another. But in this case, it's very telling because the Madeleine McCann case update pales in significance when we consider that global uprisings of unparalleled proportions are raging on. Worse still, in addition to distraction, this week has highlighted that there is still a chronic reluctance to recognise the racism that pervades every level of British society. Despite Britain's lengthy colonial history, and evidence of contemporary British racism, strong arguments are still being made to present as though racism is an American phenomena only. So what next? What do I think we should do next then, now that we've had all this happen? Well, I don't know what's going to happen next, but what I would like to happen is, in the UK anyway, I can't speak for America, but in the UK, I think we should have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which needs to be established here to deal with crimes of the British Empire and slavery and colonialism. For example, the British taxpayer was still paying off government debt, borrowed to pay millions in compensation to wealthy slave owners during the British slave trade up until 2015. In other words, the descendants of slaves who never got any compensation have been paying compensation to the descendants of slave owners for 200 years. Slavery and the human suffering it brought with it made Britain rich. And this crime requires truth and reconciliation. At the very least, if financial reparations are are not to be made, but for many I fear that this could be too late and too little. Another piece of ongoing work that seriously needs to occur after the process have have happened is self-exploration and behavioural changes. It's imperative that white people and non-black people who perpetuate racism and who benefit from white privilege and non-black privilege, that they are the ones who work towards moving and removing this cancer from our society. It's really not the work of black people to justify why we shouldn't be killed, and often in such brutal circumstances. We shouldn't have to be the ones appealing to your humanity. But sadly, the sense and solidarity of humanity of many is clearly so bankrupt that it does almost require such work on the part of the oppressed. And that's unfair and is also a further injustice. Now, where does the social contract fit into all of this? You're probably wondering, because that's what this, this podcast is all about, the social contract. It's about framing everything within this theory as it pertains to our lives now. Well, largely it brings us to the topic of policing and what the social contract says about that. So let's take a forensic look at the events leading up to Mr Floyd's run-in with the police. At 8.01pm, a 911 call was made by an employee at a convenience store called Cup Foods, alleging that George Floyd had tried to pay with a fake $20 note. I look at this part of the timeline and I think, how common is counterfeit money and is it a crime in the US to have counterfeit money? Well according to the United States Department of Treasury an estimated 70 million dollars worth of of counterfeit bills are in circulation which means roughly every one counterfeit note in every 1,000 genuine notes is moving around in the US and as for criminality 
Well, the federal law states that producing or distributing counterfeit money or knowingly attempting to use counterfeit money is a criminal offence. A criminal offence which in Minnesota, the highest penalty for knowingly using counterfeit money less than the value of $1,000 is up to one year in prison with a fine of up to $3,000. According to nearby businesses near to Cup Foods where Mr George Floyd had shopped just before he was killed, the matter of counterfeit bills is unheard of. But according to a resident of the neighbourhood in which George Floyd lived, there have been some counterfeit notes that they've seen floating around. But they say, this resident, it's never been a problem where the police have had to be called out. Though these two things are conflicting, we could surmise that there's a bit of a trend in Minneapolis in the use of counterfeits. But I think it's important to question why that might be. Well, for one, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, which has caused further socio-economic disparities. And these changes and these disparities would have undoubtedly pushed people to desperate new lengths since there have been major job losses since the outbreak of COVID-19. So to me, there's no surprise that counterfeits would be roaming around more commonly than before. Now, on the point of the police and whether they needed to be called in the first place. Well, to answer this, I looked at what the law says in America. And a legal firm known as Rosenblum Law, they say that there's a significant difference between calling 911 and calling the police. Rosenblum Law say the 911 should be called when someone's life, safety, health or property is in immediate danger. This would include violent crimes, such as domestic violence, instances of suspicious persons or vehicles or fights and people with weapons, instances involving suicide or attempted suicide, or a situation in which someone is having a dangerous mental or emotional episode. You should also call 911 immediately for any kind of fire-related emergency or if you need the ambulance. Whereas local police departments, they say, should be called instead of 911 in circumstances such as, but which are not limited to, crimes in which there are no injuries and the suspects are no longer on the scene or nearby. These would include theft, stolen cars, vandalism, harassment, trespassing, threats and cases of assault, involving non-serious injuries, traffic accidents, no bodily injuries and which do not present a serious traffic hazard, where there are questions of arrests and prisoners, noise disturbances like excessively loud musical parties, questions about vehicles that have been towed or impounded, suspected cases involving drugs, prostitution or gambling that are not currently in progress, to find out warrant information, to report a disabled vehicle, debris in the roadway, Um, and damaged or malfunctioning traffic signs or signals that are not a serious traffic hazard, information on traffic tickets, parking tickets or court appearances, and finally to make complaints about the police. It is in those circumstances mainly that one should call the police, in the US anyway. So it makes very little sense to me why the shop employee felt it necessary to call the 911. And even if they had decided to call the police department, or precinct, as it's termed in the US, even if they'd called them directly, this still wouldn't have seemed appropriate because the use of a counterfeit note is not a requirement for calling either department, as we've seen from the list that I've read out, and especially not the 911, given that no life was in immediate danger at the time. Nonetheless, the store still stand by their decision. 
stating, as a check cashing business, this is a routine practice for us. We report forged money, then the police come and ask patrons about the bill to trace its origin. Upon receiving a counterfeit bill from George Floyd, one of our employees called law enforcement in accordance with this procedure. Now, interestingly, there is a lot of mystery around this bill at the moment. And apparently um, police officials have been completely silent on the location of the alleged counterfeit note, citing that officials can't comment on investigative data. And in the 911 transcript of the clerk who told the dispatcher verbatim, um, someone's come in our store and has given us a fake bill and we realised it before he left the store. So we ran back outside and he was sitting on his car. That's what the transcript says. Now, the owner of the store, Mahmoud, questioned whether Floyd even knew he used a counterfeit note in the first place, which troubles me indeed. In fact, Mahmoud goes on to say on Facebook, normally officers take a completely different approach by asking a few questions about the counterfeits and then putting it in a bag and taking it away. So normally there's no ruckus at all. It's a very simple, simple process. The officers come down. They say we've been told about this counterfeit note and they take it away for checking. That's it. Now, what we've heard from Mahmood doesn't seem to require the excessive force that we saw on the video, which the officers used on Mr. Floyd. And this brings the matter of the social contract and policing into question. To recap what I've discussed in episode one, the social contract envisioned by the likes of Jean-Jacques Rousseau is one where we the citizens give up our freedom. In turn, our collective rights, or the general will, lead to the creation of a government, which then seeks to establish protection of life, liberty and property. The government also uses a police system to enforce the necessary protections needed and to handle any defectors of that agreement. The police service is in fact a public agency. And although the idea is for the police to use force in the name of society for the protection of society and its individual members, this does not extend to the deadly use of force. According to a 1985 paper by J.H. Ryman, it is not proper for the police to take a life except to preserve a life. States misuse their mandate of the social contract and control when they permit police to shoot at fleeing felons, even if they are unarmed and pose no immediate threat to citizens in the vicinity. Those most likely to be shot by police, the poor, black people, Hispanics and other minorities are largely already victimised by the social and economic hardships and discrimination imposed on them. Any standard that permits the deadly use of force to save a life under immediate threat increases the risks and inequities for those already suffering injustices. Because they are not full beneficiaries of the social contract, the oppressed should be treated with special care by the public agencies assigned to protect citizens." End quote. Now, this line of thinking goes a long way to answering the question, to whom does the social contract apply? And the logical follow-up question is, since the modern social contract fails to fully realise non-white people as full members of the agreement, then is there a special duty of care that public agencies such as police should have to protect marginalised citizens? One of the problems of the social contract is, as with any contract, its terms can sometimes be unfair for some people and imbalanced. For example, the poor 
do not get the same benefits as the rich in the social contract. It's not completely fair. And in the same way, neither do non-white populations in the social contract. And often this imbalance is magnified when black people have the misfortune of coming into contact with law enforcement. In the book Ethics in Law Enforcement by Steve McCartney, he explains, specifically for law enforcement, social contract theory is important to justify the power that law enforcement can exert over the population as a whole. The power imbalance held by law enforcement is part of the contract that society has agreed upon in exchange for security. Where the contract can be problematic is when the power used by law enforcement exceeds what is expected by society under the contract. Given that roughly in my lifetime, that is since 1990, 183 black, Asian and minority ethnic people have died in police custody, as stated by Minister of Parliament for Tottenham, David Lammy, on the most recent episode of the BBC's Question Time. Now, although this figure is roughly in line with demographic figures, when broken down by ethnicity, the figures show that black deaths on their own are massively overrepresented in the number of deaths in police custody compared to the national demographic. If that doesn't go against the very essence of protecting life, liberty and property, then I don't know what does. As I record this episode this evening, on Sunday 7th of June 2020, further protests have taken place up and down the UK. And in Bristol, the city bequeathed with profits from the slave trade, has today seen Black Lives Matter protesters pulling down a statue of one of its most famous sons, Edward Colston a 17th century slave trader who worked for the Royal African Company, the company that trafficked more Africans into the slave trade than any other company in history. It was under his watch that 19,000 African slaves died en route to the Caribbean. And today it is his monument that we've seen being pushed into a harbour in Bristol by these protesters. And so to anyone who disagrees with this, to anyone confused or upset that their history is somehow being erased by this long overdue act, or somehow feels as though this is a removal of history in some way. And for anyone who can't cope with the discarding of a slave trader and a murderer's statue, but who remains quiet on matters concerning slavery and its wrongs, well, here's a special Frederick Douglass quote for you to enjoy. Where justice is denied, where poverty is enforced, where ignorance prevails and where any one class is made to feel that society is an organised conspiracy to oppress, rob and degrade them, neither persons nor property shall be safe. What does this mean then for our society? Well, it means, in my opinion, that government needs to pull their finger out or the people may pull government down. The social contract dictates that the people are well within their rights to do so when the government is failing to meet the needs of all. The government and its agencies really need to operate with more than a modicum of of decency for all people and recognise that in actual fact it is the marginalised to whom the government owe the real duty of care to provide an extra layer of protection due to their vulnerability and disadvantages. I don't really think that politicians have understood that quite yet, that as public servants, it is their job, what they sign up to, is to protect 
all people, but most of all those who do not have the ability to stand up and speak out. Justice needs to be served for every unlawful, unethically and morally bankrupt act of the police. I can't stress this enough in how infuriating and upsetting it is to have been born in a country that refuses to make right on the wrongs of its past and present. No politician in Britain or monarch has ever had, as if it's code, has ever had the decency to so much as apologise for the wrongs of slavery, nor is there any initiative to straighten out the police force in any meaningful way. We simply get this line, oh, it will take about 100 years for the Met Police to reflect society. That's just not good enough. There's this reluctance to stop openly celebrating people like Colston who have made their wealth on human exploitation. There is so much more to be said in this vein. As we rewrite the social contract through our action, statutes shall continue to fall. Public agencies shall in time fall in line and the public shall mould government in a way that benefits all as equally as possible. That much I believe. But I have to go further this time than I did before because I'm no longer as worried about making sure this podcast comes across as some wholesome discourse on societal issues. That would be betraying all those whose shoulders on which I stand. Speaking truth to power is the only way and doing so powerfully is the only way. And so to be very clear, there are no ifs and no buts. The social contract does not apply to black people. I can't speak for other non-white backgrounds. My lived experience, my understanding of history and contemporary racial affairs that Dr. Charles W. Mills, whose brilliant work I previously discussed at great length, was absolutely right. The social contract is an agreement between whites only. And given our laws were predicated on such a belief, the modern social contract, therefore, needs to be uprooted. So big up and mad respect to the Black Lives Matter organisers and every single person who managed to attend any of the protests that have taken place recently all over the world. Mad respect to you. You have my solidarity and more power to you. Right, so for this week's recommendations, I have quite a few. But before I get to those, I have a quick request. Please check out the work of the Black Curriculum who are an organisation that are passionate and dedicated towards improving the syllabus and curriculum in the UK in order to bring truth to the black British history and to make it go beyond the bounds of slavery, especially what we tend to learn, which is in an American context. Um, And so I would I would just implore you to check out their website, uh, Google the black curriculum. And then for my recommendations, firstly, two activist powerhouses, the legendary Angela Davis and Jane Elliott. This is an in conversation together uh, that I found on YouTube. Angela Davis, who has spent most of her life working as a political activist. She's an academic and an author. And Jane Elliott is an American educator who's best known for her famous blue and brown eyes experiment. I absolutely love them both. I was fortunate enough to hear Angela Davis speak at the South Bank Centre last year for uh, International Women's Day. And I do hope that one day I get to meet and greet uh, the wonderful Jane Elliott. 
Now, um, do check out this brilliant conversation with these two wonderful ladies speaking about race and privilege. Um, they are, in my opinion, a once in a generation uh, kind of people. So it'd be, it'll be a worthwhile hour or so spent watching and hearing from them. My other recommendation is for you all to have a listen to a podcast that I listen to regularly. It's called the High Low Podcast, um, an episode that was released on 2nd of June 2020, so just a few days ago, in which they share, the, the two ladies who present this show share powerful anti-racism resources. And they also interview Black British mummy blogger and now author Candice Braithwaite about her new book. She's a fantastic speaker from the other side of the Thames. I'm from North London. She's from South. But I still rate her work. So, you know, no hard feelings there. (laughs) And as a fellow Black British mum, on a serious note, as a fellow Black British mum, I greatly appreciate her voice in a mostly white mummy blogging community on social media, which is a shame because having more role models outside of my mum and other women I know personally, when I was expecting my kids would have made the journey that bit easier and less alone. And I'm sure it's the same for many black women. And like me, Candice is of working class background. So I can relate with much of what she says in this episode. And then there's the hosts, Pandora and Dolly, who I think spoke eloquently about the matter of anti-racism as two white women from specific backgrounds. And in addition to my earlier explanation of why all lives matter is a futile response, a completely ridiculous response to Black Lives Matter. Pandora shares, or Panda as Dolly calls her, shares a perfect analogy for why this idea should be quelled even further. So do enjoy that episode as well. And then finally, to really understand how painful all the events that have gone on this week um, is for Black Brits, please give John Boyega's impassioned speech at uh, London's Hyde Park, Black Lives Matter protest, a watch. And I'll link that in the show notes as well. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I won't make any promises this time about what the next episode is going to discuss, because who knows what's coming this week and who knows what it will bring. But hopefully in the next part of To Whom Does the Social Contract Apply, whenever I get to discussing it, it will be on the role of women and what considerations are made for women in the social contract. As always, subscribe, share and support. Find me, Jacqueline Courtney, on Twitter as at Jack Courtney, that's J-A-C-Q-C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y. And please give the podcast a follow at Contract Today, also on Twitter. Have a wonderful week. See you again.